I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Investigators look at many methods of evidence to solve a crime. Forensic DNA, witness testimony, confessions from the perpetrator. In the cases we will discuss today would be the victims themselves that point the finger at their killer. Whether it be through a social media post, a diary entry or other interactions they had before their death, each one of these victims left behind evidence to help investigators to find their killer. Solved from beyond the grave this week on Mysteriously Listed. Number 5. Tiana Notice In 2007... Tiana Notice connected with a guy named James Carter on an internet dating site. Tiana had recently broken up with her college boyfriend after a five-year relationship, so she wasn't looking for anything serious. James seemed almost too good to be true. He was a manager of a successful law firm. He had his own house. He wanted to give Tiana everything she ever dreamt of. Tiana soon fell in love and the two began an intense relationship. This loving relationship soon turned violent, and Tiana would take out a restraining order against Carter. In the months before her murder, 25-year-old Tiana contacted the police to report several violations of this order, that he was still stalking and harassing her over social media. Police did not take her claims seriously, and no further charges were laid against Carter. Tiana tried turning over a series of emails from Carter to police, but they told her these emails were not threatening and therefore they would take no further action. But then Tiana's car was vandalised. Police told her they did not have enough evidence that it was Carter who had been responsible, so no action was taken. Even though police kept dismissing Tiana's claims, she kept reporting her concerns. Only days before her murder, Tiana found a handwritten note by her front door that she was certain came from Carter. She gave this note to police, and they in turn asked him for a handwriting sample to compare against the note. This would prove to be the breaking point for Carter, and unfortunately, Tiana's demise. Valentine's Day, February 14, 2009. Carter was waiting by Tiana's apartment, waiting for her to return. When she arrived, Carter ambushed Tiana and stabbed her 20 times before fleeing the scene. Tiana was one hell of a fighter, and she did not want to give up. She called 911 and told dispatchers, quote, I'm bleeding to death. My ex-boyfriend just stabbed me to death. Unfortunately, first responders did not make it to her in time, and Tiana died en route to the hospital. Because Tiana did not give up and made sure she continued to report Carter's abuse right until her dying breath, police were able to quickly arrest him and charge him with Tiana's murder. James Carter was sentenced to 60 years in prison and will remain behind bars for the rest of his life. Number 4. Candace Parchment 
two months before Candace's disappearance in January 2010. 15-year-old Candace called her mother and asked her to pick her up at an abandoned house in Forest Park, Georgia. Once Candace's mother found her, Candace ran to the car and said she had almost been raped by two older boys. Candace's mother begged her daughter to reveal the identity of her attackers, but Candace refused. On the evening of April 28, 2010, Candace apparently packed up a few belongings and vanished into the night, on her own accord, never to be seen again. Candace's mother and friends feared for her safety. Were the two events somehow connected? Unfortunately, in December 2010, everyone's worst fears were realised. Human remains were found underneath an old mattress in a wooded area near Candace's home. Investigators immediately knew the remains belonged to the missing teen. It was clear Candace had been murdered. She was reportedly stabbed and strangled to death. However, police could not identify any suspects or persons of interest. And as things go in this situation, the case went cold. In October 2011, Candace's mother decided the memories in the home were too painful and decided to move. While packing up some of her daughter's belongings, she discovered Candace's diary from the time she went missing. Recorded were the identities of the men who attacked her in the January before her death. Candace wrote that 19-year-old Marche Hickman and 19-year-old Jermaine Robinson had attempted to rape her in the abandoned house. And Candace wrote in detail what happened to her. That Robinson had hit her with a rake and Hickman blocked the door to keep her from escaping. Candace wrote about how she pleaded with them to let her go. Quote, Please let me go, I said. My pants were unzipped. I was scared. Unquote. Candace's mother knew in her heart of hearts that Hickman and Robinson were responsible for the murder of her daughter. At this time, Marche Hickman was already incarcerated on an unrelated robbery charge. When investigators paid him a visit for questioning, he openly admitted to strangling Candace and hiding her under the mattress, although his version of events apparently differ to that of what the evidence shows. We know from Candace's autopsy she was stabbed, but Hickman denied any knowledge or being responsible for stabbing the teen. According to court documents, Hickman, quote, placed his arm around her shoulders and was trying to speak with Candace. He stated that he then placed her in a position where his arm was around her neck. He squeezed tightly and kept his arm there until she fell limp, unquote. Marche Hickman was subsequently charged with the murder of Candace Parchment. Police later arrested Jermaine Robinson for his role in Candace's attempted rape. However, he was not charged with anything in relation to Candace's murder. Robinson would plead guilty to aggravated assault after admitting to hitting Candace in the head that night. He also agreed to testify against Hickman at his murder trial. In the murder trial in April 2013, Hickman's defence acknowledged that Hickman confessed to killing Candace. However, Hickman claimed he blacked out during the attack and did not remember the act occurring. The defence maintained that this is why Hickman cannot explain how Candace got her stab wounds and that someone else must have been present that night. Regardless, the jury found Marche Hickman guilty of all charges. Murder, aggravated assault, attempted rape and concealing a death. He was sentenced to life in prison where he remains to this day.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Number three, Annie Kapsuzak. Annie Kapsuzak was born in January 1997, and during her short life, she experienced a lot of trauma. She had an abusive childhood and went through the foster system before being formally adopted when she was nine years old. At the time of her murder, 15-year-old Annie was a freshman at the Summit Academy in Draper, Utah. Like most teenagers, Annie loved listening to music, hanging out with friends, and she adored animals. March 12, 2012, Annie was reported missing by her parents after they couldn't get in touch with her. Concerningly, they found a note tucked under her pillow stating she was running away to California. Annie wrote that she was pregnant, even though she was not. She ended the note, quote, Please don't try to look for me because I don't want to be found. Unquote. The police began their search for the missing teen immediately. Annie's cell phone pinged several times between 8.44 and 9.22pm in the area near the Jordan River. At this time, the cell phone went out of service. Annie also had a diary where she wrote about being pregnant to 14-year-old Christopher Bagshaw. The two were dating at the time, and she admitted in the weeks before she disappeared that the two had started having sex. Annie's parents had her take a pregnancy test, which came back negative. However, in her diary, Annie wrote that she let Bagshaw believe she was indeed pregnant with their child, something he was obviously not happy about, being 14. Based on her diary and the note, it is thought that Annie ran away because she was embarrassed about her fake pregnancy. But given her cell phone pinged close to home, her parents held out hope that Annie would return once everything blew over. Unfortunately, that never happened and Annie would never return home again. The following morning, March 13, 2012, a jogger alerted authorities to some blood and a shoe on a pedestrian bridge over the Jordan River in Utah. The police then searched the area and eventually found Annie's body downstream in the river. She had suffered multiple blunt force traumas, resulting in a fractured skull. The investigation then switched to a murder investigation. Police obviously questioned Bagshaw, who denied even seeing Annie on the night she disappeared. That he spoke to her on the phone, but that was it. Bagshaw said he could hand over his clothing, but Annie's blood may be on his sneakers, because in the days before her murder, Annie had a nosebleed, and some of this blood may have dripped on him. When police seized some clothing, including his sneakers, they indeed found some of Annie's blood present. Unfortunately, a false confession from a local woman led investigators to arrest two other men in connection with Annie's murder. After months of pursuing charges against these men, investigators eventually determined that they were not connected to Annie's death whatsoever. The woman who claimed to have witnessed Annie being murdered by the two men eventually admitted to making the entire story up. 
The investigation once again circled back around to Bagshaw. This time around, investigators found messages that revealed he and Annie spoke about running away and raising their baby together. It is believed this idea of a baby on the way is the motive for Annie's murder. Christopher Bagshaw was arrested and charged with Annie's murder in 2014. By 2016, his charges were upgraded to adult status. He pled guilty to murder and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Number 2. Brian Kappenhurst Married couple Tammy Joe and Brett Parker lived in the small town of Irmo, South Carolina. Parker was involved in illegal sports betting with business partner Brian Kappenhurst. Both men were addicted to gambling and were suffering from large amounts of debt. On the day of the murders, Brian told his wife Cindy that he intended to confront Parker about the money he was owed. April 13, 2012. Parker called police and claimed that Brian entered his home and shot his wife Tammy Joe immediately. He then demanded money from Parker's safe. In an effort to defend himself, Parker claimed he grabbed his own gun and shot Brian in self-defence. Parker's explanation of events portrayed himself as the victim in the situation. However, it didn't take long for Parker's story to fall apart. Investigators learned of the money Parker owed Brian and that Brian was worried about talking to his business partner about the money. Brian was so worried, he told Cindy that if she hadn't heard from him within the hour to call the police because that meant he was dead. Investigators also learned of a million-dollar life insurance policy Parker had recently taken out against Tammy Joe, and that Parker had been exchanging flirtatious messages with other women in the lead-up to his wife's death. Three months after the incident, Brett Parker was charged with the murder of both Tammy Joe and Brian. At trial, prosecutors presented their belief that Parker wanted to relieve himself of debt and to get out of his marriage. So he concocted his plan to kill his wife and his business partner, who wanted to collect money that Parker owed him. The prosecution then presented evidence that Parker shot and killed Tammy Joe before Brian even arrived at their home, and Brian was shot as soon as he walked through the front door. Parker, in his defence, maintained his original story, that it was actually Brian who killed Tammy Joe, and then Parker killed Brian in self-defence. The jury did not buy this story and ultimately found him guilty of both murders. Brett Parker was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. He attempted to appeal his case in 2016, but the conviction was upheld by a three-judge panel. Parker currently remains behind bars in a Columbia, South Carolina prison. Number 1. Brittany Gargoyle 18-year-old Brittany Gargoyle was a happy-go-lucky teenager. She was adventurous and ambitious and strong-willed. She loved her family and friends and was super popular at her school. March 25, 2015 Brittany posted a picture of her and her best friend, 18-year-old Cheyenne Anton, on social media. The two had plans to go out for a night of drinks and fun. But that was when things got out of hand and the story is open to interpretation. Brittany and Cheyenne had attended a pub named Manchester's Brew Pub. Later they went to a house party and then the Colonial Pub and Grill. 
Cheyenne claimed that at around 4am, Brittany asked an unknown man for a lighter and invited him for some drinks. Cheyenne claimed she did not know what happened from there. All that she remembered was that she left to visit her uncle at a senior facility centre. She did not see Brittany after this point. Later that evening, Cheyenne posted a message on Brittany's social media page. She asked if she was okay as she hadn't heard from her. Prosecutors would later claim that Cheyenne posted that in an effort to throw investigators off. A few hours later, the police received an alarming 911 call. The caller had found a woman lying on her back. She was cold to the touch and did not appear to be breathing. She also had no shoes on and it was rather chilly outside. The police arrived on the scene to discover the body of a lifeless young woman with clear signs of strangulation. The murder weapon, a black belt, was found nearby. Based on witness accounts, they knew that someone had dumped the body between 5.20 and 5.40 that morning. The woman would be soon identified as Brittany Gargoyle. Over the next two years, the police conducted several interviews and followed several leads, considering and discrediting theories. Then investigators found something curious on social media. Cheyenne was wearing a stylish black belt, the same belt found on the crime scene. The police sent the evidence for DNA testing and they found Cheyenne and Brittany's DNA on the belt. The police found it strange to discover Brittany's DNA on the belt. How did Brittany's DNA land on a belt belonging to Cheyenne? It seems like they had found the murder weapon, unless Brittany had worn the belt before. Unfortunately, the police could not prove what the case was. In 2017, with all the information the police had on the case, including witness accounts, they arrested Cheyenne Anton for second-degree murder. For a very long time, Cheyenne remained stoic. She showed no emotions and insisted she had nothing to do with the murder. The police tried several techniques to break her, but the woman was unyielding. However, after several weeks of interrogation, Cheyenne finally broke. She confessed and took full responsibility, but she claimed to remember nothing about killing her best friend. During her confession, Cheyenne told police her version of the night. Brittany and herself were out drinking and partying hard. They'd also taken drugs and were super high. Cheyenne claimed she remembered only the house party. After that, her memories were hazy. She vaguely remembered the two of them going for McDonald's, where things got crazy. She and Brittany got into an argument, and Brittany took her phone away. Cheyenne remembered being beyond angry with her best friend, but could not recall what happened. What Cheyenne believed might have happened was that she might have snapped and choked her best friend, possibly killing her. Cheyenne's defence tried to argue that Cheyenne was the victim of abuse, and it was a moment of misjudgment that caused her to act violently. The defence also believes that Cheyenne did have those memory gaps and did not remember killing her best friend. They claimed the memory lapsed as a result of intoxication and shock. Ultimately, the judge sentenced Cheyenne Anton to seven years in prison. He also included her in a prison program to help address her mental health issues. She will be released in 2024. What would you like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Please search Mysteriously Listed on Facebook 
like the page so you don't miss an episode. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search Mysterious List. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Research, additional writing, hosting and production is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.